actually, I would title this The Mark of a True, true Christian. The Mark of a True Christian uh, is the Characteristic of Love. So if you're taking notes, I would put The Mark of a True Christian is the Characteristic of Love. Using my phone, my Bible seems to have, <clears throat> it's playing hide and seek with me. Um, I think it also is playing hide and seek with my wife's Bible. So if you see a black or a green Bible, it's, yeah, let me know. <laughs> that would be great. It's an ESV Bible. So, uh, uh, yes, if you do see one, let me know. Um, so as you know, in looking at this epistle, the theme that runs all the way through this entire letter is the identifying works of true Christians. This is John's whole concern, right? The whole epistle gives way of discerning who is truly part of the real family. And as we come to chapter 3 in verses 11 through 18, we come to the subject of love. Thank you. Is this sterilized? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Ah, I'm reading it upside down. Okay, cool. Thank you. <coughs> huh? Okay. Um, thank you. Um, this, this is, we, we come to the subject of love, right? Or better yet, we come to the test of love or the mark of love. This is one of John's key determining factors to identify true Christians. When someone claims to be a Christian, someone who claims to be in union with God and union with Jesus Christ, possessing eternal life, we are instructed here to examine the character of their love life. Christians who are genuinely born of of God, they manifest this transformation by means of righteousness and love, And these are the two basic behavioral tests, right? It's the two measurements of conduct. The first is righteousness. And in the prior passage, which uh, Pastor Roger covered, um, I believe he's at Shepherds, so so thank you for being here. But he covered this last week. We looked at verses 4.10, right? We were told that the darkness walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going, and is blinded by the darkness. But here again is the indication that one might claim to, be, claim to be a believer, but if there is no manifestation for love for others who are believers, that claim is meaningless. This is nothing new, John says. This is nothing new. The people of God has always been marked by love for others. You'll see it in the 19th chapter of Leviticus. You'll, you'll see it when you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And over and over again, the people of God are commanded and known by loving their neighbors and loving others. And you know, speaking of neighbors, I have some really good ones. 
and, and my wife and I talk about it a lot. You know, just the way that they kind of exhibit love to us. Uh, in our community, we all have detached garages. They're kind of um, they're kind of next to each other, um, and we're right in the middle. There's two two of uh, neighbors to our side, and another two on our side, but they're all connected. They're all connected, and um, it's interesting because during garbage day, like during garbage day pickup, we have our garbage and recycling, and we have to, you know, put it up behind our car. So we park one car uh, on the in the garage um, and one car on the driveway, and then we put the two garbage. We put a garbage bin and a recycling bin behind our car. So in the mornings, we can't really just reverse out because then we'll just crash into the recycling bin and the garbage bin. We have to actually move it aside and then go out. But if we move it aside, it goes to my neighbor's side. Or if I move it to this side, it goes to my neighbor's side. So I'm, I'm like lose-lose. I can't put it anywhere without blocking someone. So there's this one lady, uh, one neighbor, who uh, when they pick it up and they empty the bin, she actually takes my garbage can and she moves it to the front of my car so that I could reverse out. And sometimes the recycling is not emptied. So instead of leaving that there, she takes that recycling bin and she moves it over to her own driveway and blocks her own driveway. So sometimes I get out and I'm like, oh, there's my garbage can. And I used to think someone was stealing my recycling bin. I was like, who in the world wants to take my recycling? I was so mad. I was like, you know, I'm going to take a permanent marker. I'm going to label it, you know, with my address. I was like, no one's going to take my recycling bin. And then the next week, I was like, my recycling bin is gone again. Like, who loves my recycling bin this much? And I found out that it's actually sitting with hers, two of them, side by side. I noticed one neighbor has two recycling bins, and one of them is mine. And she does this so that we, she knows that we go to work and reverse out of this driveway without having to move anything, you know? This is something that we are so appreciative, and we know that as believers, we have to do love like that, but more. God commands us to love like that, but more. We are to outdo others in our love. It was kind of sad because I was like, oh, I found out that she's moving. I was like, no. I don't know why I care about this so much, but I just, <laughs> I really I really appreciate her, like, so much. Um, I guess I'm just nervous about who's going to move in and fill her shoes, you know. Um, but John is cycling back to the same subject, right? That love is an indispensable feature in the lives of God. Right? Those who claim to have a, a, a relationship with God, we are to have this feature. Right? We are taught of God to love. And the Apostle Paul wrote, the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts, in Romans 5.5. 5. So we possess the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and all the rest. So if you are of Christ, this is your characteristic, right? We have been given, then, a capacity to love. It, it is more than just the command. It is a capacity. 
And not only that, but it's more than just the capacity to love, right? It is a characteristic. That's why Paul says, I don't need to teach you how to love. You're taught of God to love one another. It is natural to the believer to one another, to love one another. And we see that we will be, you know, it will be repeated again and again in this epistle. And this is not the last time we will come across it. We can look for a moment at chapter 4, verse 7. Um, just if you look at verse 7, uh, sorry for some spoil alert. I, I think Stan's going to teach on this. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. In verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if God lives in you, if you share the life of God, God is love, and you will also love. God loves those who are his, and you will love those who are his as well. This isn't just merely a duty. It's not merely just a responsibility. This is an evidence of the presence of God residing in your life, of God having shed his love in your life, of God having placed his spirit inside you who is manifestly producing that love. Now, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. But it needed reminding due to these false teachers that were coming in. So as we begin this passage, let's go back to chapter 3 in verse 11. But before we begin, let us pray. God, we just want to ask that you be with us, Lord, as we look into your word that's so truthful and so powerful and is piercing to our hearts, good for our souls. Lord, we pray that you would just teach us what it means to love and quite the opposite, what it means to hate. Lord, we ask that you would keep us alert and that you would be glorified tonight. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So you look at verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this goes to our first point. True Christians are called to love one another. True Christians are called to love one another. And again, this isn't the first time they've heard it, right? When we look back at chapter 2 in verse 24, it says, Let what ye have heard from the beginning abide in you. And here's the problem. They had the truth right at the beginning because it was delivered to them by the apostles. They had the truth about the gospels, right? They had the truth about the person of Christ, right? They had the truth about their own sinfulness, right? They had the truth about their own, about just how disobedient they were. They knew that. They knew their disobedience. They knew what was righteous and what was unrighteous. They had the truth about love right because it was delivered to them by the apostolic preachers. 
and it was delivered to them by those whom, who brought them the true revelation of God and the gospel. But however, after a certain period of time, <clears throat> they had false teachers come in, and they were getting another message. So John's like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. <clears throat> Forget what they're saying. Don't pay attention to what they're saying. You have to go all the way back to the beginning from what you've heard, right? He's saying this is the message which you have heard, that we should love one another. The false teachers might be telling you that it doesn't matter, right? It's not a requirement of your faith. It doesn't help with knowing who God is. They may also tell you that you can deny the deity of Christ. You can know Christ as some spirit, right? He, he wasn't some flesh. He was some spirit floating around. So you can deny the humanity of Christ. Right? These were the Gnostics. They may tell you that all these lies. They may tell you all these lies, but he's saying go all the way back to the beginning because you know that you know that that's not the message that you've heard from the beginning. They may tell you that you're not called on to love, that love is not an element of true salvation. And he's telling the listeners that you need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to what you've heard when you first heard the truth. And heretics, they always come along, right? They always come along boasting about some new teaching. And in the Bible, anything that you find new is probably not true. Right? You might find somebody who has a fresh insight into the truth. But anything that's new is not true because the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. And nothing shall be added to it or nothing taken away from it. And that's how the Bible ends with that warning that anybody who does this is in grave danger from the judgment of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he, he kind of began that point. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. I'm telling you the message, John says, that I received from Jesus Christ. He's saying, from the beginning, I got that message from Jesus Christ. Do not distort it. Do not take another message that you've heard now because it is not true. I don't care what anybody says to you since. It's, it's not true, right? And this is what cults do, right? They take the Bible and then somewhere uh, in, in more, more modern history, there is some revelation from an angel you know, that they claim. And then there's a revelation from some supernatural source to somebody who writes that revelation down. So, you know, you, you could think of a lot of, I could think of a lot of people, but we think of someone like Joseph Smith right, with the Book of Mormon, right? Oh, I found some scrolls that you, you guys didn't found. I found. I found some plates, you know, some, some truths that wasn't in the Bible, and I wrote it. I wrote it with Jesus Christ directly telling me what to write. But it is our responsibility to say, that's not defined truth. 
to go back to the original revelation. And that's what John essentially is saying. Let's go back to what we taught you in the beginning. There's nothing new. The truth is not altered. It doesn't change. The truth about Jesus Christ doesn't change. The truth about the gospel doesn't change. The truth about man doesn't change, right? He's sinful, and that doesn't change. The truth about obedience and righteousness does not change, and neither does the truth about loving one another. Go back to what you first heard, and don't get led astray. And what did you hear with regard to this particular emphasis, that in verse 11, we should, we should what? Love one another. Right? This is the manifestation of transformation. Now, you kind of remember this passage. It's a pretty familiar passage. We've noted it a couple of times. Um, but if you look at John 13, 34, and 35, where our Lord Jesus identifies this distinguishing mark of his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. The command to love was not new, right? As John indicated, if you look at chapter 2, right, the commandment to love was very old. It goes back to Old Testament. But when he says a new commandment, this commandment to love has some newness to it. And the newness to, to it is this, right? When he says, a new commandment I give to you. Not just that we should love one another, but you should love one another as I have loved you. That's the difference, right? Don't just love each other, but love one another as I have loved you. So it goes beyond another level of love. It's a level of love that demonstrates itself in the self-sacrificing affection to the way Jesus loved. That the newness, because he's saying there's this newness here because there had never been an example like that. There's a newness in the command. Once you see it, exhibit it in Christ. No one has ever loved like Christ has loved. And then he says, that's how you, you should love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is unique. Christ's love is unique to the point where if you exhibit that kind of love, people will recognize you and know you're of Christ. You can tell a true Christian love. Uh, you can tell a cr- true Christian because he loves other believers, and we're talking about the family here. It is impossible for a true believer not to love other believers. That is a distinguishing mark of the presence of a loving God. God loves us, and because He loves us, He takes residence in our lives. And he manifests that love through us. Jesus commanded his disciples in that upper room in chapter 15 of John 
He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, it's an old command, but it has a newness because now I am taking it to the point where it's absolutely self-sacrificing. He is saying, love as far as you can love. Stretch yourself as far as you can go in love. Reach out as far as you have the capacity to reach. And he's saying, exercise it to the max. So if you look back to our opening statement in 1 John 3, it says, you have heard from the beginning this message that we should love one another. Right? I don't care what anybody comes along and says, this is true. This is not just command. It's not just a command. This is a God-given capacity. The capacity to love like this is instilled in you. So we are obeying it, and we're able to do so because of this wonderful work that the Spirit of God is doing in our lives in the shedding of the love of Christ all across in our hearts. Now, having introduced that theme of love in verse 11, John moves in to a contrast. And contrasts are very typical of John. Right? All through his gospel, all through his epistle, he's sort of the black and white apostle, and we see it here. In regard to this matter of love, he contrasts the children of the devil with the children of God. Right? It's a simple contrast. Children of the devil hate, the children of God love, the children of the devil resent, and the children of God respect. Children of God are The children of the devil are selfish, and the children of God are sacrificial toward one another. There is a huge contrast between the two, which leads us to our second point. True Christians are opposites of the children of the devil. Or you can even say true Christians are total opposites of the children of the devil. In order to see that contrast, let's look at some of the characteristics of the children of the devil. And they are characteristics that demonstrate this absence of love. And the first one is this. The first one is murder. And I would say that this is a a fairly good Uh, demonstration of the absence of love, murder. That is the ultimate act, ultimate act of hate. Verse 12, you're to love one another not as, what, not as, and here, here comes the contrast as we look at the children of the devil, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Here's the lowest level, the lowest level that any relationship can ever descend to. 
right? You can't get any worse than that when you kill another person, right? This is hate's extremity. You can't go beyond that. It is characteristic of those who do not know God to be murderous, to be murderous. And John introduces the one Old Testament reference in this epistle. There's just one Old Testament reference in the entire epistle and the only proper name in this epistle, and he picks Cain. The classic example of a murderer. Cain and Abel, they had the same parents. They had Adam and Eve. They were raised in the same home. They had the same influences. They were called to the same God to offer sacrifice. They both brought sacrifices to God. Cain, if you think about it, Cain was never presented as an atheist. He is presented as a religious man. He is actually a worshiper and a worshiper of God. And the only God they knew about was this creator God. And they knew the God who was creator. Their parents probably walked and talked with them about who he was. And their parents probably had certainly told them all they knew about God, right? They weren't very far removed from personal testimony. They knew the true God who was creator. They knew the God who had acted in judgment against their parents because of their sin. They knew the God who has cursed the earth and had put the curse upon the serpent. They knew the God who has pronounced not only the curse, but blessing on Adam and blessing on Eve. They knew the God who had promised that there would be a seed of the woman who would eventually bruise the serpent's head. They knew the one true God. They both did. But Cain, Cain was not an atheist. He was a religious person. He came as a worshiper of God. So it's curious, right? You, you want to understand that some of the most murderous people who exist, some of the greatest haters of those who were truly gods are those who are religious. In fact, you can make a case that they were probably the worst. It wasn't atheists who murdered Jesus, was it? It wasn't atheists who screamed for his blood and demanded the Romans to crucify him. Who shouted that? Crucify him, crucify him. It wasn't religionists. Oh, I'm sorry, it was the religionists, right? It was them. It was, it was in their own way, their own twisted way, worshiping the God of Israel, the God who was the very God and the father of the one they sought to kill. So you could have, you could do all the rituals, you could do all the traditions that you want, but it's no proof that a person is born of God. Cain was a very religious man. He didn't bring the right sacrifice because he had a self-styled religion. Right? There was no question in my mind that he was commanded to bring an animal sacrifice as his brother did. 
And that's why God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. Because Cain didn't bring what God asked. Rather than bring a sacrifice which God asked, he brought the fruit of the land which he himself had toiled to produce. And so for him, he was going to make his relationship with God based on what he accomplished. And that never gets you anywhere to God. But he was a religious man. But at the same time, he failed to test the love. It's clear that even though he was not an atheist, even though he was worshiping the true God, he was worshiping him in a wrong way. And he was worshiping him from a wicked heart. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 4, actually, if you could go back to Genesis chapter 4, we just want to look at this account of why we're bringing up Cain and Abel. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. We end there. Because God had already revealed what he wanted in animal sacrifice, Cain knew that this is what God wanted, right? God kind of revealed it and hinted at it because this was the picture, that this picture of the coming Messiah, because sin requires what? Sin requires death. Yes, somebody who said it out there, I'm sure. There has to be a sacrifice for sin. And it's pictured even then in Abel's sacrifice, right? God had no regard for the offering of Cain. Verse 5 says, Cain was very angry. His face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He's saying, you better get a hold of yourself. You better deal with your sin. This attitude that you have, this anger over being rejected because you you came the wrong way, this anger because your brother was accepted and you were not, you better deal with this sin because it's crouching at the door. And if you don't master it, it's going to take you over. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain what? Apologize? Sorry, bro. My bad. I was 
I was hangry. He was not. It says, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Right? Right after God says, you must rule over it. Killed him. And so the real test of Cain's true religion wasn't his sacrifice. Right? That was one test. But that wasn't the full test. And we could say, well, he was trying to get there by works, right? And that's bad. That's why. But it's worse than that. He, he despised the man who was obedient to God. He despised the man who was truly relig- uh, righteous. He despised the man who was truly righteous. And, and false teachers are like that. False teachers that come in to pollute the clear waters of truth and the lives of these people to whom John writes, hated, they hated true righteousness. They hated the true Christ. They hated true religion. They hated true righteousness. They despised it because those people who are outside the kingdom of God and do not possess true salvation, even though they are religious, are the children of the devil. And that's really the bottom line, is that the people who hate Jesus, who the people who hate Jesus is those people who hate the people who love Jesus. It's the unrighteous that hate the righteous. It's the ungodly who hate the godly because we expose them, because we call them into question as to what they believe and how they behave. And if you go back to 1 John, a characteristic of the children of the devil is murder. Cain was, you know, look at, notice back at verse 12, Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. He belonged to the kingdom of darkness. John 8, 44 says, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus said. Why? Because they were the Jewish people to whom Jesus said that had developed a work system like Cain. They They hated true righteousness, and they were plotting to kill Jesus. Right? These are the people that developed this work system, just like Cain, to gain righteousness, and they couldn't do it. But they hated true righteousness, and they plotted to kill Jesus. And Jesus says to them, You're of your father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Notice the terms he uses here, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. And the word, the word in the Greek means evil and active opposition to good. You, he was aggressively evil, fervently evil, determinately evil. It's the same phrase used back in chapter 2, verse 13, to describe Satan. It is evil in active opposition to good. Active opposition to good. Evil to the extent that you want to you pull everything down with you. Like it's not enough just to be evil. It's evil where it, I want to have it affect others as well. That's Satan. He is constantly evil in that he is not content 
to go down and perish in his own corruption. He wants to take the whole world with him. And Cain showed his spiritual connection to Satan by murdering his brother. And the word here regarding Cain slew his brother in Greek means to butcher by cutting the throat. He slit his brother's throat. And this is important because there had only been, up, up to this point, there was only one indication of a death prior to this murder. And it was God killing an animal to take skin to cover uh, Adam and Eve. And very likely, God had killed that animal by slitting its throat, which became the standard practice in the sacrificial system. He, he literally came up behind his brother and he butchered him by cutting his throat. The term is used in classical Greek to refer to the slaughtering of victims for sacrifice by cutting their throat, cutting their jugular. Right? It is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Leviticus 1.5 to refer to the slaying of sacrificial animals. It was almost as if Cain said, Okay, God, you want a sacrifice? You really want a sacrifice? I'll give you a sacrifice. And he cut his brother's throat. And that, that's the cruelty that existed in Cain's heart. And the writer here, John, uses a vivid, strong word to describe the murder. There's another word that means to kill, but he doesn't use that word. He uses the word to butcher by cutting the throat. Right? Cain slit his brother's throat almost as an act of defiance, as, as a way to mock just even the way that God instilled this you know, sacrificial animal of slicing its throat. Cain is saying, I'm doing the same thing to my brother. Because you wanted a sacrifice, right? I gave you one. Why did he do that? And it tells you right here in verse 12. For what reason did he slay him? Why did he do that? It doesn't say because he was, you know, because they got into an argument or something. It says because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And evil, evil people hate the righteous. Three out of five places where Abel is mentioned in the New Testament, he's described as righteous. God has given clear instructions on how to worship him. God had very likely even instructed about how to kill the animal in the quickest, most humane way by the slitting of the throat. God had revealed that this was to be an act which depicted a sacrifice and not bringing the works of your own hands. Cain rejected God's revelation, decided that he would do it his own way. Then, in an act of unbelievable defiance, right, manifesting that he was a child of the devil, he said, okay, God, you want a sacrifice? Here's one. And he gave to God righteous Abel. Cain had the opportunity of obedience, 
but instead he followed his father, not his father Adam, but his father Satan. And rather than repent, he killed his rebuking brother. And the Bible doesn't say that Abel rubbed it in. It doesn't say that Abel said anything to intimidate his brother or to, uh, to some sort elevate his anger. It simply says here, he killed him because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The world is murderous, always has been. And the evil, wretched world under the prince of the power of the air, the children of Satan, they hate the righteous. They hate the righteous. They're they're jealous of the acceptance with God. They're angry at being accused. And that leads to murder. No one wants to be told that they're not good or that they're unrighteous. Right? This is life on the level of the children of Satan. And frankly, that's why God put government in the world. That's why he put capital punishment in the world. That's why he gave the government the right to punish, to take a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth in Exodus 21. Because you have a world full of children of the devil. So if you have a world full of people who are liars and killers, right? And how are you going to deal with all that? There has to be some power. There has to be some threat. There has to be some severity of consequence to restrain people. That's why there's, that's why there's government. That's why there's the police, the military. I'm not saying they're all perfect, but there needs to be some kind of governance. And God had instilled in us control through the government. So ultimately, in its extreme, the absence of love is a murderous heart, right? characteristic of all children of the devil. And, and you might say, well, now, wait. You're, you seem to be saying that everybody who is unconverted would murder people. And that's what the Bible says. They just don't have the opportunity to do it, right? They, they don't all actually do it, right? But it's residing in their hearts. But that takes us to the second thing of the characteristics of, you know, as we're looking at the characteristics of the children of the devil, if not murder, there's another characteristic, and that is hatred. So look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who doesn't love abides in death. And then look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. People with murderous attitudes don't have eternal life Because eternal life loves. It makes you love, not hate. Most people have never murdered anybody. Most people would love to have. Right? That's the only difference. They've just not done it. And the only difference between murder and hate is what? Is the act. The attitude is the same. Right? 
maybe you've never had an opportunity to do it. You were restrained because of the consequences. But in God's eyes, hatred is the moral equivalent to murder. Hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. You're, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook just because you've never killed somebody or you don't kill somebody. You are children of the devil, whether you kill somebody or not. That will manifest itself in your hatred of others. Right? Could you, without negative consequences, carry out your murder? There was one night I was flipping through channels, or I should say scrolling through channels. Well, since now there's YouTube TV, you know, I, you can't really, you don't flip, you kind of just scroll through. Uh, I landed on a movie called The Purge, right? I think some of you have heard of it. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Uh, it, it, uh, I'm not recommending it, but essentially what I saw was violence galore. Um, it was basically based off uh, America that's infested by crime and overcrowded prisons. And the government has sanctioned an annual 12-hour period in which any and all criminal activity, including murder, becomes legal. And the police can't be called. The hospitals can't, you know, can't send any help. It's one night when the citizenry regulates itself without thought of punishment. And, and this government here in the movie does this to purge all the pent-up violence that people have in their hearts, everything that they want to get rid of. They want to, you know, clean up the streets, you know, take care of those who are weak. And I don't know, it's a crazy story. It was just, it was just a lot of violence. <laughs> and I'm glad that this is just a crazy fictional idea because it would be chaos. And if you listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.21, it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, right? Which seems kind of mild right now. You know, if I just say, you good for nothing. But in those days, it would come out differently. It was much stronger. A person who says that is to, is to you know, basically curse someone. And anyone who curses someone shall be guilty before the Supreme Court and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You're going to hell for your hate, whether or not it ever materializes into murder. Hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. It just doesn't exercise the option. And most people haven't murdered anybody but people who are children of the devil are characterized by hate. And so go, go back again to verse 13. He's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be, do not marvel. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Right? It comes with the territory. It's because of the children of the devil, and they have nothing in common with us. Right? Nothing in common. Marvel or surprise here 
has to do with something that's shocking, mysterious, amazing. The hatred of the world is not amazing. It's not shocking. It's I'm not... not sure I understand. You're serious talking to me. It's not... Sh- this is shocking. I don't know how this... Could... It's not mysterious, not hard to figure out. It's just the same as Cain and Abel. He hated his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. It's only to be expected that the wicked would continue to regard and treat the righteous the same way that Cain regarded and treated his righteous brother because they all have the same father. Hatred for believers is a giveaway that you don't know God. In kind of expanding out you know, the thought on that, just another passage in John 15, on, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, it says, John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Do not be surprised. The world hates me because the world is made up of the children of the devil. He's saying the, the devil hates me. The devil loathes and despises me. So his children feel the same. That's why in verse 19 it says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I choose you out of the world because of this. The world hates you. And there's no reason for the world to hate us. We don't do harm. We don't harm the world. There's no reason for people in our society, the elite, the rich, and the famous, the the sinful and the publicly sinful, the blatantly sinful, to hate anybody who is religious, or who, sorry, who is righteous, except for the fact that they manifest that they're the children of the devil. Right? It's a dead giveaway. By its hatred, the world reveals its true character. Right? Cain hated Abel. People hated Jesus. Jewish leaders hated him. They hated the apostles, and they martyred all but one, and they exiled him. And through the history of the church, the church's leaders have been hated. The reformers, the nonconformists, They were persecuted. They were hated. And even today, there are more Christians being persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ than ever in history. Tens of thousands dying all over the world under the hateful, murderous people who are the children of the devil. So this is what is characteristic of them. Do not be surprised if they hate you. This reminds us just how powerful hate is and how much hate grows into this murderous intent and then this murderous intent into a murderous realization. There was a murder story that I I followed uh, that I couldn't believe. And it was a story of a husband who killed his pregnant wife and his two kids. And in this story, it basically says that he got into an argument with his wife. He had not really loved her 
uh, or he, he kind of stopped loving her. He was annoyed of her, and he was having an affair, and she kind of knew it. So she confessed to him and said, I know, I know that you're having an affair. And he told her. He said, yeah. Uh, and she basically said, I know you're, you're having an affair, so you're never going to see the kids again. And right then and there, it snapped. That's what he said. He said, he snapped. And he put his hands around his wife's throat and began to strangle her. And there was a part of him when he was killing his wife that it was somehow implanted in his mind. And he said he had no control over it. And during the trial, the prosecutor said, it takes two to four minutes to strangle someone. And he asked them, why couldn't you let go? And he said, I don't know. I was wondering that myself. Why couldn't I just let go? And just then, one of his daughters came into the room. I think they're young. They're really young. They asked what was wrong with mommy. And he said, he said, mommy didn't feel good. Then he wrapped his wife's body face down into a bed sheet, dragged her to stairs, put her, put her in his truck. And they kept asking him, is mommy okay? <clears throat> that wasn't enough. He then went to go to his work. He works at some oil thing. And he was going to put his wife's body and dump it in a shallow grave. But both of his girls asked him, what are you doing to mommy? And then he returned to his truck. He, he grabbed a blues, blue Yankees blanket and he basically smothered his first child. Then he looked over at his other daughter and the other daughter said, is the same thing that happened to my sister going to happen to me? And he did it strangled her too and he put them into this oil containment an oil tank dismembered the body and everything <clears throat> and her last words were daddy no and he did it looking back the investigators asked him why he did this and he said he thinks he may have taken his pent-up anger with his wife out on everyone that morning. He thinks. He thinks. He said he had never been that angry before and believes it, have may, it may have stemmed from the feeling that his wife drove a wedge between him and his family. And he, quote, he said this, it's like a long fuse that finally just went to its end. In other words, he said, simply put, 
right? In other words, he said this, that his anger was made manifest. Our hate and our anger has murderous intent. We just don't do it because of the action. We don't do the action because just of the consequences, right? But this is the same as Cain and Abel. This, This hatred festers up and it grows and it wants to kill. And in your heart, you want to kill. And then it's too late. And then people find out. People find out you're lying. Like in this story, the investigators find out what he's doing. He tried to play it off like nothing happened. How could you do that? How could you have so much hate that you would kill? And that's exactly it. That hatred is murder. This is a dead giveaway for those who do not know Christ. But on the other hand, right, here's the other contrast in verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we what? We love the brethren. That's the contrast. Because no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the question you might ask is, so are you saying that if someone commits a murder, they can never be saved? No. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if someone continues with a murderer's heart, they're not saved. I mean, if, sorry, I'm going to say, I'm saying that if someone continues with a murderer's heart, they're not saved, Right? But if you think about it, Paul was a murderer, was he not? Didn't he persecute and kill Christians? And he even said, I am a blasphemer and a murderer. But he repented and was forgiven. So all sinners can be saved. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about who can be saved. We're talking about who is saved. Who is saved? And people with murderous hearts have never been transformed. They're, like just, they're just like Cain. They are children of the evil one. So if all of you here are believers, you have been transformed. You, you don't hate, you love. Right? Murder is the worst. And then there's hate. And then there's the lack of care. If you look at verses 16 and 17, it's, we know that not everyone are, is driven by the same degree of hate, nor do all of them carry to extreme and kill. The best that can be said is that they manifest a lack of sympathy. So if you look at verse 16 and 17, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Contrast that with verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Right? This is indifference. This is another evidence of the unregenerate. They have the world's goods. They don't make sacrifices for anyone. They're dominated by selfishness. Right? If they do give away, it's kind of like chump change. They give away here and there, whatever is left, crumbs in their pockets. They're not concerned with others. You say, what about those people who are somewhat sacrificial and get involved in charitable works? And again, they do that for purposes that accrue to their own glory. It's not because their hearts are genuinely broken in love for others. right? People in the world don't love like that. You could watch YouTube videos of people giving away free money, you know, just out in the streets, but they're always getting filmed, right? So that they could get more money. That's why people always say, like, would you do it if you weren't being filmed, right? I mean, a lot of times it's like, hey, guys, we're going to give away $1 million to someone randomly on the street. We're like, wow, you're generous. But then all of a sudden there's like 1,500 million views, and you're like, This guy's even more rich than what he gave out. But here, we're talking about a genuine love for others. Even when you don't have, you give. Now, if you go back to verse 16... It says, they certainly aren't going to die for somebody... Right? They might kill somebody, but they're not going to die for somebody. And that's very, very rare, unless a person is utterly swept away in some fit of nobility that's not generally characteristic. And if they do die, it might be some misguided, selfish act, kind of like a terrorist who blows himself up so he can arrive in heaven and find the 72 virgins waiting for him, or that he could be some kind of hero. But the children of the devil are murderous. They're hateful. They're indifferent. And they say that even if they have the world's goods, they won't give it out. He might claim to be a religious person. He might claim to be a passionate, sympathetic person. But if he slams the door in the face of the one in need, he is not a child of God. Eternal life does not dwell in those who murder They don't dwell in those who hate, those who are self-centered, those who are selfish. Those are all characteristics of the children of the devil. But you think about someone like Epaphroditus, right, in Philippians 2.25, the total opposite of that, total selflessness, a willing to give up everything, right? If you look at Philippians 2.25, Paul says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he heard, right? Because he had heard that, because you have heard that he was sick. And indeed, he was sick to the point, but God, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy upon him. And not on him, but not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And then it says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, 
and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And he was a man who was manifesting that he was a child of God because he was giving his life away for the cause of Christ. And Paul had the same attitude. For me, for to me, is to live. Oh, sorry, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he said, I offer my life on the sacrifice and service of your faith. He said, I will give my life away getting the gospel to you. And the contrast here is huge. And so finally, in verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we're of the truth and assure our hearts before him. Not only is your love a testimony to everybody around you that you belong to God, it's an assuring testimony to yourself, right? Profession is not enough. It's not enough for those around you, and it's not enough for you. He says, love, not just in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. He wants, he's, he's saying, have genuine action. Love sacrificially. Love in a way that's been described. Love by giving your life away. Verse 16, laying down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, love by seeing a brother in need and opening up your heart to him. Verse 18, love not just in what you say, but in how you act. It isn't just words on your tongue. It's deeds that manifest the truth of that love in your heart. And here then again, John identified for us unmistakably the manifest nature and character of a true Christian. Right? Whatever somebody claims, here's the real evidence of a true Christian. I've had so much privilege of someone sacrificing to come pick me up in the mornings on Sundays at 6.50 a.m. or 7 a.m. to drive me to church so that my wife and I doesn't, don't have to take two cars. Or they drive me home after practice, after you know, uh, worship team practice. I have had someone who, uh, you know, would bring food to me on Sundays while I'm doing AV and say, hey, this bow is reserved for you and you only. I mean, my stomach, thank you for that. I have someone who, a couple who, who prays for my wife and I constantly who come up to us and we don't talk to them you know that much but they come up to us and say we've been praying fervently for you guys every day every day and that's overwhelming because i think what do i deserve you know your time in just praying for others there's so many things to pray about but then to say that I'm praying for you every day. And then to someone to say, hey, I have this old crib for you. 
and I want to save it for you for when you have your child. It just means so much to, to my wife and I to have that kind of thought, to say, I want to reserve this thing to, for you and to think about these things So I'm overwhelmed by some of you who have get shown me that kind of love. And I want to encourage you tonight to kind of be the opposite of hatred and love others like Christ loved. To have that level of love that goes beyond what the world sees. So that when you do love, everybody will know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And you represent the testimony of his saving grace. Let us pray. God, we still want to thank you. Just showing us the contrast of those who hate and those who love. And you've experienced firsthand the greatest hate of all and that while you were trying to serve and trying to save those you were ridiculed you were mocked and you were crucified but yet you continue to display that love on the cross And you have instilled that in us, Lord. And I pray that you would just continue to foster that in our hearts to remind us as believers, as we walk with you, that it's not just merely a command. This is our newness in life. This is who we are. This is our characteristics as a Christian to love, to represent who we follow. Lord, I pray that tonight we just have good discussions, Lord, that we would grow and that we would love one another, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.